What is Mother's Day? We welcome you. If you're a guest here, we appreciate you coming, and we hope you come back in spite of all these similar shirts that we're wearing today. We're not a cult, but we would like to, for you to get your measurements outside before you leave today. Ezra chapter 4, we're calling this, The Devil Does Not Sleep, or as one of the country singers, one of his songs is, The Devil Don't Sleep. He says this, Lord knows the devil don't sleep. He never shuts his eyes. You never hear him creeping. And that sounds very similar to what Jesus Christ says in Matthew 13, 24, and 25. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy, i.e. the devil, came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Now, last week, we talked about starting from scratch, and I kind of left you happy as you thought about God as my father, Christ is my older brother, the Spirit is my comforter and counselor, and then, bam, Satan and his demons are ready there to take you down. And you found this to be true. Many of you, when you became believers for the first time, you thought, I get it. By God's grace, I'm walking with Christ. My heaven is secured. What could go wrong? And then you forgot when the people explained to you the gospel, or maybe they didn't fully explain to you, there are people, not just people, but spirits waiting to take you down. Satan and his dominion. Now, just to be clear, before we go any further, let's talk about the devil. The the devil cannot take your soul. It's impossible. You are secure in Christ. But I want you to note this. He can take away your joy through discouragement. He can take away your witness by you falling into sin and you just, you know, it, it can destroy your witness for Christ amongst the unbelievers. They'll look at you and they'll say, you look just like me. Why should I listen to you? He can destroy your ministry when you give into the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. You see, let me tell you what, there are many faulty beliefs about Satan. We could do a class, and it's actually called the class of demonology. We won't do that today for Mother's Day. But it's, it's only right for me to bring up a couple of things, because what kind of mother would you be if you didn't tell your kids, don't go play in the streets? And many people just handle Satan in a sort of cavalier way, or maybe give him too much credit. We kind of fall on two different sides of the road, two ditches, if you will. In this ditch, Some people would see the devil is behind every problem I have in life, every problem. Blame it on the devil. And I would tell you this, the devil is not behind every problem in your life. Um, It could be simply you're reaping what you have sown, or perhaps you live in a fallen world, which you do. But even with that, God is still sovereign. And these same folks that say the devil is behind every trouble will also say things like, you know what? It's good to rebuke Satan and to do it out loud, which is actually just the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Jude 9 makes it very clear that Michael, Michael the archangel, would not even rebuke Satan. He says, the Lord rebuke you. The point of it is this, and it's not just nuance. It's important to note. James 4, 7, it says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
But what we tend to do is we can just find ourselves, you know, taking on a satanic presence without submitting ourselves to God. We let the Lord fight for us. And that's vitally important. We should remember that. On the other ditch, perhaps these people would say that the devil is, is, is really, he's just a creation. God is sovereign, so everything that happens in life is from God. And some of you are listening going, well, that's right. Well, I would say that, hmm, let me nuance that a bit if I can. When you say that Satan is just a creation, he's not just a creation. He's the most powerful creation that God ever created. And some would say, well, what about Christ? Well, Christ was not a creation. He was born. He was not created. He is the creator. Through him, all things came into being. But the devil is not just a creation. He's the most powerful creation. He's brilliant. He's wise. He knows the Bible better than any of us ever could. And another part of this is regarding the nuance. God is sovereign, just to be very clear. Uh, yet, I would say whatever happens in life is not necessarily from God in the sense that God is the active cause. Now, stay with me. Lock those doors. You think I'm speaking heresy. I'm not. Stay with me. God is the first cause of all things in the sense of everything that has to, it comes into our life must cross his desk first. Everything is approved by God. Amen? And yet, I would also say, but God didn't cause Adam and Eve to sin they chose to sin. So God may be the first cause, but he's not the second cause, which is oftentimes the active cause. When we sin, we don't blame that on God, or at least we sure, sure shouldn't. Sure shouldn't. <laughs> we see in 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter will say, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. To be clear, God is sovereign, but Peter doesn't just say, hey, y'all, God's sovereign. Don't worry about Satan. He's just a creation. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You better be on the alert. Yes, we believe God's sovereign, but we also believe we should be on the alert. Does this make sense? Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, we hold both up. And so what we're going to see is from here on out in the book of Ezra to really the end of Nehemiah, all we see is affliction. There's some good, happy spots, but there's also affliction. Jeremiah Burroughs, an old Puritan, wrote in The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he wrote this, affliction is the normal life of a Christian. He continues on, it is your weakness and folly that you did not look for it and expect it. There is no affliction that should come unexpectedly to a Christian. And I would add to that, no work that seeks to honor God goes unopposed by Satan and his demons. He opposes us. Cyrus, think about all these good things that are happening for the Jews. Cyrus has issued a decree to rebuild. 50,000 Jews return. I know it's not many, but still there's some that do. They rebuild the altar. They celebrate the Feast of Booths. They lay the temple foundation. Did y'all think it was just going to be happily ever after? It's not. And it's not for us either. Now the enemy steps in and writes two letters, and not just two letters that we'll see in this text, but many other actions of Satan. And the temple work stops for 16 years. 16 years. So what we're going to look at today throughout this text is we'll kind of see this overlay of seven afflictions Satan uses to tempt you to distrust and dis disobey the Lord.
I'm, I'm thankful for a guy named Stephen Cole who did a sermon on this in Arizona and some of his, his work uh, I've used as well in the mix of this text uh, just because it's a good paradigm, I think, what we see. Uh, Romans 15.4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Listen to me. This is not just a book an old story about Jews living thousands of years ago. This same information here, the same lessons are for us as well, according to Romans 15.4. So let's dig right into the text. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, this is the word of God. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, let us build with you, for, the worship, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. First affliction Satan sends us, at least in this paradigm. He tempts us to compromise under the false pretense of cooperation. He tempts us to compromise under the false pretense of cooperation. I mean, think about this. You're not many Jews here, and you find these other peoples of the land that are saying, hey, we'll help build with you. What time do y'all get started? We'll show up. I mean, a great way to build friendship with your neighbors. They're gonna help you cut down the time to build this temple. This is good, right? Wrong. The Holy Spirit is calling them adversaries. So these are enemies. Continuing on, verse three but Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, at first glance, you look at this and you go, what's going on here? Uh, you have nothing in common with us? Are these Jews being racist? I mean, they're refusing to work with people of other ethnicities, other nations. That doesn't set very well with Americans, nor should it. And I would tell you, no, it's not racism at all. It has nothing to do with that. There's two reasons why the Jews are saying no. Number one, political. Political, he's saying the Jews alone are authorized by Cyrus to build the temple. No one else. So we're following the king's command. And number two, which is more important, is there's a religious reason. If you know your Old Testament well enough, you know that the Jews and Gentiles couldn't intermingle. God was keeping a straight line uh, to the one day that the Messiah would rise from the Jews. They couldn't assimilate with the peoples. They had to keep themselves separate. And so God says, no, that's enough. And, and keep in mind, one other thing is that on, the, on the, uh, the part of the peoples that are wanting to help out, the way it works is like this. If we help build, we'll also be able to worship there too. I mean, you can imagine if you had a next door neighbor and, and he said, hey, you need some yard work done? No, I don't, but I'm trying to build a, um, a tree house for my kids. Oh, be glad to help you. He provides some of the wood. He helps you build it. And he's got a few kids as well. And he says right afterwards, once you're done with the, with the uh, treehouse, he says, hey, do you mind if my kids come over here and play with it? And you say, no, no, this is, this is our treehouse. You would say, huh? And that's from their perspective, they're going, we're going to help build it and we're going to worship here as well. 
And just to let you know, who are these people? Well, Ezra 3.3 describes them, the peoples of the nations. I'll show you a little fuller picture of it. Can you turn, if you will, to 2 Kings? 2 Kings chapter 17. We're going to look at what has happened in Israel. Israel meaning the northern nation of Israel. All right. 2 Kings chapter 17, 24 through 29. Once the Assyrians destroyed the northern country of Israel, what did they do? They brought in their own peoples to assimilate. So basically to knock out any sort of Israelite nationalism. Verses 24 through 29, and the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sepharvam, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the peoples of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they're killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So the picture is lions are killing the people. And they said, the God of the land is very upset. Bring in one of the priests, which makes you wonder what kind of good priest is this? He's living in the wicked country of the northern kingdom of Israel instead of the south in Judah. But that's another story. Finally, take a look at verse 33. We'll see the outcome of that. Verse 33, so they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the, the manner of the nations from whom they had been carried away. Who are these peoples? I'll say it in one word. They're Samaritans. They're half Jews and half everything else. And they say they worship the Lord, but they actually worship everything else as well. And you say, how bizarre is that? And I would say, no. Sadly, for some of us, we're looking at American Christianity. It's something called syncretism. Syncretism is a blending of false religion with that which is true, which is of the Bible. So what did these people do? They added, basically, they added the Lord to their panoply of gods. It's not real worship. It's false. It's rebellion. As a matter of fact, the Lord describes it as rebellion. The Lord, just, he demands what regarding worship? Exclusivity, exclusivity. There is only one way to the Father, through the Son. All roads do not lead to heaven. So think about it like this, the exclusivity of this. If you're in a marriage relationship, you are called to have an exclusive relationship with your spouse. You can't imagine me coming home to my wife one evening and saying, hey, I, you know, I, I ran across, across an old girlfriend today in town and we're going to go out for a date tonight, if you don't mind. Well, I can tell you what, if that date actually transpired, y'all would eventually visit me in the hospital <laughs> or perhaps the morgue, more like it. Why? Because I'm not sharing my wife. She's not sharing me. And the way it works, you think, well, that's kind of interesting. No, that's not just interesting. That's the way the Bible describes the gospel. 
that Christ is the head of the church and the church is the bride of Christ. So we stay together. Well, these people were not doing that. They were committing all sorts of compromise. They were diving into syncretism. And listen to this. Be careful, church, that we don't judge others. We ourselves can compromise as a church, and we can do it individually as well. We compromise as a church when we, oh, lock arms with others who don't believe the gospel. Now, just to be clear, we can work with others that don't believe the gospel. Uh, Francis Schaeffer would call that being... Uh, co-belligerence. Uh, we, can, we can work with others that oppose abortion, um, but we know at all times, or, or other issues of society, but we know at all times they're not one of us. There's a friend of mine, this is years ago when we were living in Oklahoma, and he was so encouraged. He came in to work out with me, and I said, hey, why are you so encouraged? He goes, man, I had a guy stop by uh, our house knocked on the door and wanted to speak to me about Jesus Christ. I said, that's fantastic. That's great. Did he give you the gospel? And he said, well, you know, he talked a whole lot about Jesus and the Bible um, and the importance of, of trusting him and walking with him. I said, well, where does he go to church? He goes, I don't remember exactly. I think the name of the church is, it's something kingdom. And I said, could it have been like kingdom hall? Yes, that's it. Kingdom hall. I said, he's not a believer. What are you saying he's not a believer? He used Jesus, the Bible, talked about God. It's a false religion. It's nothing personal, but Jehovah's Witnesses, we love them. But we love them as people that don't yet know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Okay? They, don't believe, they, they believe Jesus is a creation. And we as believers, we need to make sure and, and you know, walk that line that we don't hate them. No, we love them. But we want to actually give them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can do that as a church. We need to be mindful of that, even as we work with other churches. And it's a good idea to work with others. And yet, we work with them as co-belligerents. We don't work with them as, as brethren if they don't really uh, hold to faith alone in Christ alone, by grace through faith in Christ alone. Oh, by the way, we can also do this individually as well. Is something to watch for, where we can choose pragmatism. Pragmatism is, is what works, what works over thus saith the Lord. There are many believers uh, in who are wonderful believers, but they can find themselves trusting in self-help books uh, and assessments without testing them to Scripture. There's a big push amongst many evangelicals today in uh, the Enneagram personality test. Big push these days. And what they don't realize is it really began by New Age philosophers. And yet many churches are using them as really good gauges to get to know people and help them. Y'all, we need to be smarter about this. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We test them. And you go, well, Jeff, we're going to test you. And I would say, praise the Lord for it. Because Acts 17, 11 says exactly to do that. The reason why the Bereans were known as so noble-minded is because they listened to the words of Paul. And then they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. I don't know about y'all, but I think I'm going to trust if Paul could somehow get in a time machine and show up here. But the Bereans are like, well, hold on a second. Paul, where are you getting that? 
how much more we should be doing the same for one another. So beware of syncretism. It comes in and it creeps just like Satan. Verse four, we're gonna see our second affliction. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. The second affliction of Satan here is he discourages them. He discourages us. In Hebrew, it doesn't say the word discouraged. It says, make weak the hands. Make weak the hands. Is that a good sound? I don't know. Continuing on, how did they, how did they know this? Like, how would they know to discourage them? Or how would, they, how would they discourage them? We would put it like this. They might say, you know, if you really loved your neighbor like you say you do, and the Bible says to do that, then you would let us help you. That can be discouraging. Or maybe they said something like, you're gonna build it on your own, are you? We're gonna tear it down. So discourage them. Uh, believers, we can do this as well. And it, even though it's Mother's Day, it's not just for moms, but you know, have you ever wondered with your own kids, if you start to listen to this voice in your head, what you do makes no difference. It doesn't really matter. You're not affecting them. You're not having any positive impact. Secondly, we start to think about, you know, you'll never break these patterns of sin. It can be incredibly discouraging, incredibly discouraging. So we see that with discouragement. We also see another one, and it's often the, uh, it's the common byproduct of discouragement, and that is fear. The third affliction God, uh, not God, the third affliction Satan sends us is fear. And note what these people are now fearful of. They're fearful of building the house of God. Fearful of building the house of God. You know, I think it's interesting. The devil and the world don't care if you seek your own kingdom. They actually want you to seek your own kingdom. But when they start to get messy, when it gets messy is when you seek God's kingdom. And by the way, it's for us. Watch what happens when you decide to be the husband or the wife that God has called you to be. You decide to go, you know what? I'm gonna follow what the scriptures say. Watch what happens. Satan loves to cause affliction then, cause you to be discouraged and even fearful after this. Or maybe to witness to your, code, uh, your coworker. And yet we know that all these things are possible through Christ. So take a look at verse five. We're gonna see the fourth affliction. Notice what they did. They bribed counselors. These may have been Persian counselors. He bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, once again, this happened for many years. They started bribing people. And, and the point of it is, is that he was, uh, what Satan is doing here is he's using misinformation and false accusations to divide and destroy us. This is what he does. He loves to divide and conquer we see um, John 8, that Satan is called the father of lies. It's interesting. Jesus could have called him the father of murder, which he is, the father of slander, which his name is, but he calls him the father of lies. And when it comes down to it, this is what the enemies of God are doing. They're bribing, they're spreading misinformation, they're lying. Satan knows how to divide this body. Do you believe that? 
He does. And by the way, I will tell you this, the importance of making sure to pray for the elders, I being one of them, please pray for the elders. Remember, we may be under shepherds, but we are also sheep, just like all of us. We're not on the varsity team, and y'all are the JV. No, we're all, the level of the cross is, is straight. And that's why you have 1 Timothy 5, 19, do not entertain as an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Why? It's a way to somehow protect the elders. Doesn't mean that somehow they can't fall to sin. Of course they can. But what, it, what the Bible knows is that how each of us are drawn to, hey, have you heard the latest? Hey, you'll never guess. This is what I heard. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's concerning if it is. You see the way this happens? And it happens among leadership and it happens among the church as well. Let me tell you what, when Jesus says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. It's also true of local churches. Strike the shepherds and the sheep scatter. So pray for both, but watch out. As a matter of fact, I would say to you, if somebody tells you the latest, you should make sure and say, have you actually talked to the person about it yet? What person? The person you're talking about. Have you asked them? Have you talked to them about it? Oh, no, but I think it's true. No, you're not helping. You're hurting. Go to them. Verse 6 through 23, we're going to see a parenthesis. It's, it's, if you will, it's not chronological from verse 6 to 23. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an overview over 70, 80 years of how they are lying and slandering the Jews. It's terrible. Let's take a look at verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus is also called Xerxes. The Greek term is Xerxes. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So if you will, the person that's writing Ezra, which is the Holy Spirit, but the person scribing it, he's going 50 years into the future and talking about Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is the other name that he has. And so the point of it is, it's showing you that there is actually some evidence, not of the Jews rebelling, but in 486 to 464, they had a huge rebellion down in Egypt. And you say, well, it was down in Egypt. But I'm telling you this, by the time the Persians are in charge of the empire, Egypt and the, the uh, Egypt down here in the south, Jerusalem and, uh, I'm sorry, Sorry, Israel in the north and then Jerusalem in the middle, they're all one state. And so when Egypt is rebellious, then the Persians would look and go, oh, it's the Egyptians and the Jews again, even though the Jews weren't rebelling. So continuing on, what we're going to see here, verse 7, in the days of Arda, Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tabil, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Here, it's referring to a future king, Artaxerxes. Uh, he's king of Persia, so it's describing something 70 years in the future. So what we see here is what's so fascinating. If you've got a guy named Bishlam, Bishlam was probably governor of that area at the time. Mithridath is Persian. Tabil is an Aramaic name and the rest of their associates. What's going on here? I think it's the fifth affliction. Satan forms coalitions to overwhelm us by sheer numbers, by sheer numbers. 
It describes these names, and he says, and the rest of the colleagues. Like, it's like they're all writing against the Jews. And when you, when you think about it here in America these days, you think of things, you know, everybody's saying this. Evangelicals seem to be the only one that's taking strong stands on things. And yet, when they look at you and they say, listen, folks of different ethnicities, ethnicities and backgrounds, they can't all be wrong. You need to get with the times. Maybe you're a bigot. Let me tell you what, even companies, even companies that are no longer neutral in promoting their products. And don't you wish they were? I miss the old days. Just sell us the product. I don't need to know your view on things. But things are changed. They're being pressured to trim their sails to the shifting winds of our age. And so we hear really ridiculous, foolish things like, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? And we start to go, yeah, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Instead of thinking about this biblically, I love what Tommy Nelson said years ago. He said at Denton Bible Church, he said, if you've ever been told that your views are old-fashioned, right, that, you, that you're on the wrong side of history, you need to answer yes. As a matter of fact, my views are ancient. They're God's views. We stand on the word. We don't have anything to prove. It's the Bible is what we hold to. So what we're going to see is that if I were to take you to the original script here of chapter 4 of Ezra, verse 8, all the way through chapter 6 of verse 18, it's written in Aramaic. It's not written in Hebrew, which is what most of the text of the Old Testament is written. And you say, well, why is that? Well, that's the official language of the Persian Empire is Aramaic. And then you scratch your head and go, well, I would think the official uh, language of the Persian Empire would be Persian or Farsi. Well, I would push back at you and say, what is the official language of the ancient Roman Empire? It's Greek. It wasn't Latin. Why would they do that? Well, it's because Aramaic is what the common man spoke in the Persian Empire, and Greek is what the common man spoke in the Roman Empire. That's all free. So what we have here from here on out, we've got a note in the, if you will think of New Testament, from here on out, you could put your marker right here. This is where the Samaritans and Jews started hating each other. It all begins right here in Ezra chapter 4. Um, now, the Samaritans are being horrible to the Jews, and we're, as we'll see. But note this, the Jews were not innocent. Hundreds of years later, the Jews would actually go up and burn the temple down to the ground in Samaria. So by the time Christ came here walking the earth physically, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And if you think, wow, well, I've, I've heard about racial differences and problems in the United States. Let me tell you what, they ain't nothing compared to Jews and Samaritans. Hated each other. But you know what fixes that? Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is really the only racial reconciliation that can come about is we become one in Christ. I digress. Chapter 8, or rather chapter 4, verse 8 through 11a, I'll read it. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapper 
deported and settled in the cities of Samaria in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is the copy of the letter that they sent. Stop there. Shimshai the scribe, he's a secretary. And you go, well, that's not a very powerful role. Secretary? I think you're familiar with the secretary of state here in our country, aren't you? So yes, it is a powerful role. Uh, and Shim, uh, rather, Shimshai is very powerful. And so they're writing a letter against Jerusalem and the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Osnopper deported. So they're writing against Jerusalem, but they're saying, who are we who are writing? Well, we came in when Osnopper brought us in. Once again, the Jews and rather the Israelites and these foreign countries all intermarried. It was the intermarriage practice of the Assyrians. This is what they did. And it happened beyond the river. Now, I don't have a map right here, but if you will, in your mind, think of this. Euphrates River is in modern-day Iraq. If you go Euphrates River all the way down to Egypt, it was a state of Persia called Beyond the River. It was made up of Egypt. It was made up of Judah, our former Judah, and former northern kingdom of Israel. Continuing on, this is a copy, verse 11 and 12. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants... The men of the province beyond the river send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are built, rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Remember the fourth tactic that Satan uses? He lies. These folks are lying. Now, they may have been referring to a future time regarding finishing the walls, but it's maybe unlikely. They might just be saying, hey, they're building the temple, but let's tell them they're building, we're building the walls. That'll really make them mad. Verse 13 through 16, we have two big lies here. Number one, now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, toll and the royal revenue will be impaired. First thing they lie about it is that they're going to stop sending taxes in. And verse 14, now, because we eat the salt of the palace, I'll explain that in a minute, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of our fathers. Here's the second lie. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. Now, look up here. They're not just saying that it's, it's, a, it's a little rebellious. It's a chronically rebellious city. They're out to destroy and incite rebellion. That's not true. That's a half-truth, as we'll see. Continuing on, that was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will have then no possession in the province beyond the river, which you could say is a third lie. We'll just call it a massive exaggeration. They're saying if Jerusalem rebels, then Egypt, uh, the, uh, the northern province of Samaria, which used to be Israel and Judah, they're all going to fall. And something that I think some of you smart folks uh, caught is that the city was not laid waste simply because of their rebellion. Why was the city laid waste? It is God's judgment on these people. Don't forget that. That is the primary first cause here. 
And says, so he's, they say this, they say, by the way, the reason why we're writing this is we eat the salt of the palace. I don't remember the last time I used that phrase. Do you? Man, I eat the salt of the palace here. Well, let me explain. It means two things, and probably it means both of them. First off, salt was used to seal covenants, so it implies loyalty. King, we are loyal to you. We eat the salt of the palace. But also, one that you're going to be a little bit more familiar with, salt is also a form of payment. I think all of you are perhaps familiar with the term salary. That actually comes from the Latin word salarium. It means salt money. It's a ration that the Roman government would give Roman soldiers. They'd give them a bag of salt. And you go, what's that for? Well, you could, you could you know, keep your meat. You could flavor things. It was good. It was helpful. Um, so even our word salary comes from that word salt. So it, so it connotes payment. You may have heard the phrase, that man is not worth his salt. Same idea. He's, he's a disloyal man or he's, he's, he's not valuable He's not worthy of a salary. So they're saying that to the king is that we are loyal and we, we connect to you. We, we've got a salary from you. And then they said, it's not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor. We don't want to see you dishonored king. We're looking out for you, man. You will discover in the record books, and so what they're saying, these two lies, they're not going to pay you taxes. And number two, it's chronically rebellious city. But what we see all throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, the exiles are peaceful. They're not trying to rebel at all. Verse 17 through 20, we get the letter from the king, and he answers in the opposite direction. Well, actually, he answers two different ways. We'll see. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made it a decree, and here we go, number one, search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. What's he saying? This city is chronically rebellious. Uh, they, they, they say the figures don't lie, but what? Those who figure do. And that's what's happening. Is this guy's going to go along with the narrative? Yes, I think you're right. They are rebellious. We see number two, verse 20, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. He's saying there were mighty kings at one time and they paid money to those mighty kings of Israel, but they may not pay it to us is what they're in essence saying. So uh, what happens? Verse 21 through 23, therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the heart of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews of Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. We have our sixth affliction, and I think you know what it is. Satan uses government forces to shut us down. Boy, that would never happen in this country. <laughs> Acts 5:29, Peter and the apostles answered when they said, when they tried, the government basically tried to shut them down. They said, we must obey God rather than men. 
You need to memorize Acts 5.29, ladies and gentlemen. You're probably going to use it in your future sometime. I'm not saying there's a boogeyman behind every government order. Just to be clear, don't, I don't want your emails. <laughs> but I'm telling you this. If Satan is the power of the prince of the air, do you think he could actually use government? Some that many are unbelievers? Of course. He can use government. He can use businesses. He can use whatever he wants, just to be clear, uh, to shut us down. And that's what happens here. Um, some of you in here may have had to even deal with that, maybe not from the government, maybe from your own company that, um, that has been perhaps hurtful to you, hurtful to what you believe about the Bible. Matthew 10, 16 tells us this, be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. At the end of the day, at the end of your life, you don't want to be confessing to the Lord, I'm sorry, I just kind of went with the company orders. The government told me to do it, and I just did it. There's a lot of ex-Nazis, perhaps, that would tell you not to do that kind of thing. And I'm not calling anything, anything more than I'm just pro- I'm pointing out that many times we just need to be very careful that we are obeying the Lord. And we need to make sure that we can point it out in Scripture as well as obeying the Lord. Verse 24, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We had a long parenthesis, verses 6 through 23, and then it comes back to verse 24 in the present, and it's saying that the, the work stopped. 536, they finish the foundation, and no one does anything for 16 years. They just leave it. How did it begin again? Well, we'll find out next week. Or maybe I'll just read the scriptures. That's probably even better. But we'll talk about it. The the last affliction we'll see is the seventh affliction, is we see that Satan never stops his opposition. The devil don't sleep. He doesn't somehow give you your retirement years to enjoy. No. Conclusion, I'd like to leave you with three points, and then we'll be done. Number one, don't be surprised at your afflictions whether they come from Satan or from perhaps even your own doing, don't be surprised. The Lord is allowing these things. First Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Number two, prayer should be your first action. I want you to note something. Do you ever see in this chapter the people of God going to the Lord in prayer? It's not there. What happened? They decided, they instead decided to keep their eyes on their circumstances instead of the Lord. It's easily done. We all have witnessed that in our own lives. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, pray without what? Ceasing. We tend to cease and we focus on the circumstance instead of the Lord. But prayer should be our first action. We don't see any praying going on here. And the people just say, Our authority said to stop, so we're going to stop. They're fearful. They're discouraged. And finally, number three, God's work can be halted, but never fully stopped. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus makes us a promise. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it or overcome it. So my question to you is this, is that are you part of the church today? 
I'm not referring to this local congregation. I'm not saying have you been through church membership. I'm saying have you come to the place of trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, knowing that he died for sin and you're a sinner? Hey, this equation works, right? My encouragement to you is trust in Christ alone for your salvation today. He's coming back soon. And if you are a believer in him today, then my encouragement to you is to keep trusting him today. Whatever may happen in our uh, church, whatever happens in the world, whatever happens, we are his people, a flock of his hand. He's with us. Do you know that today? If you don't, come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy and that your compassions are new every morning. Lord, we pray that you would help anybody in here who's not yet know Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, as their savior. Would you grant them that today? And I pray for the rest of us that we would not um, be fearful. Lord, help us to be people of confidence, but not in our own confidence, but confidence in the person of Jesus Christ, that whatever may happen in our lives, whatever, Lord, you're in charge, and you're bringing about these things for our good in your glory. In your son's name we pray it. Amen.